hopefully you all know what a brick is. In case you're not sure, I put a brick on the screen here for you. A couple bricks. Just think about this, though. Bricks by themselves, how useful are they? Like a stack of bricks, for example, and a randomly stacked bricks or a pile of bricks are not real helpful and useful by themselves, are they? But they can be. Uh, if you join bricks together with concrete, they can be quite useful and helpful. And in fact, they're very strong, as I found out when I had to tear down a, a, a wall at my house when my parents had, uh, had a room built onto my house. I had to take off one of the brick walls. It's amazing how difficult that was to take that wall down, especially to get, you know, get it started to come down. It was incredibly difficult, even with chisels and big hammers and pounding, you know, with all my might, it was very, very difficult to move those bricks. They were very strong. Bricks put together, like you see here, can become part of a building and be useful. But by themselves, they're not that useful. Well, God's Word, the Bible, tells us that Christians are actually a collection of living stones. If you want to think of it as bricks, that, that works for me. But uh, the Bible actually calls us living stones, and God arranges us into a temple for his dwelling. Well, as a pastor, I'm certainly burdened about this. I'm burdened that we, as living stones, are joined together for a purpose. And God has a purpose in joining living stones, believers, the church together, and his purpose is for his glory and his honor. And a church, these living stones, can reveal God's glory, and it can be revealed through us. That's what the Bible says. So today we're going to think about this through the lens of spiritual fellowship. Spiritual fellowship. We talked about one of those four core activities of a local church in Acts 2.42 is fellowship. So what is spiritual fellowship? Well, we'll we're going to get that question answered. Uh, and we're also going to talk about what is the goal of spiritual fellowship as well today. But to do that, we're going to look at the book of 1 John here. 1 John is very helpful in talking about fellowship. It uses that word several times. It's a key word in the book of 1 John. So if you want to know more about fellowship, study the book of 1 John. Of course, the human author is the Apostle John, and he's writing to people who have turned away from fellowship with Jesus Christ, and sadly, uh, apparently some of them had turned to fellowship in false teaching. John's addressing that very issue, and he's writing to impress upon them what true fellowship really looks like. He's also revealing the, the basis of true fellowship. He's describing how true fellowship is experienced and how they are to rejoice in this spiritual fellowship. Well, let's look at the foundation, the, the introduction, if you will, to this amazing book. Look at 1 John chapter 1. Let's read the scriptures here. 1 John 1, starting in verse 1. John's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here, and here's what he says. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, 
And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That's, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So today we're going to ask two questions, and hopefully you'll see the answers here in the text. I'm not just making this up, it's in the text. So our first question we'll look at is, what is spiritual fellowship? And then we'll answer the goal of what is, uh, or I should say, what is the goal of spiritual fellowship? So let's look at the first question. What is spiritual fellowship? I mean, how are we supposed to do something if we don't even know what it is, right? If the second core activity of the local church is fellowship, we've got to know what that is. What does it look like? And really, before we unpack what fellowship is, I, sometimes I find it helpful to actually mention what something is not. So we'll look at the negative, if, you'll, if you will. Well, some people think fellowship is a set of activities. Well, it's not fundamentally a set of activities. Although, having said that, activities can actually give us opportunities to experience fellowship. For example, we have shared lunch today, although it's not really going to be shared lunch, but we're going to have a picnic and hopefully go on a nice walk. And, and when we have activities like shared lunch or we have an activity like a Christmas party or something like that, those are, are opportunities for us to hopefully experience fellowship. But just because you had to have an activity doesn't mean fellowship's going to happen. You understand? Okay, so it's, it's not fundamentally a set of activities. Uh, number two, spiritual fellowship is not fundamentally a program. Uh, some people think of fellowship as some sort of a program, though, have, again, having said that, programs may actually stimulate fellowship. For example, Sunday school, we try to, in, in Sunday school, we try to make it interactive where, where people are, are able to talk. And, and communicate to one another, and respond, make comments, ask questions. That is that is designed to help stimulate fellowship. Ladies' Bible studies are the same sort of thing. It, it's a program of of our church where where ladies. I, I, I hear I haven't been to one, but I hear you have great fellowship, and you talk about the Word of God and what God's doing in your life, and how God's Word, the Bible, might affect you and. And other people. That's great. That's it's stimulating fellowship. Number three, spiritual fellowship is not a particular place. And I say that because the church I grew up in, we had something in our church building called the Fellowship Hall. So there was actually a place called the Fellowship Hall, but that didn't mean fellowship was actually taking place there. And often, I don't know, every other month or so, we'd have uh, various activities that would take place in the fellowship hall. We might have, you know, coffee and donuts or, uh, you know, potluck is what one of the things we would have where people would come and bring their food and we'd share it with one another. And the idea was for us to have fellowship together. But just because you go to a place called a fellowship hall doesn't mean fellowship's going to take place. Right? I hope you understand that. So let's talk about the Greek word itself. This will be helpful, I hope. 
The Greek word fellowship in your Bible is the, the English-sized koinonia. That's how I would say it in, from the Greek word. Koinonia is translated in other parts of Scripture as other words, which might be helpful to you. So a synonym, how it's translated in other parts of Scripture is communion, partnership, participation, and sharing. So maybe that helps you understand the word fellowship, koinonia. It's, it's communion, partnership, participation, and sharing. And if you look in your Bibles here in 1 John, in verse 3, it's used of our communion with God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ. It's communion. It's, it's a sharing, that relationship and fellowship you have with God. And in verse 7 in your text there, it's used of our communion with each other. So the basis of fellowship starts with God, and because if you have a relationship with Him, then you can have fellowship, this communion and a sharing with each other. Jerry Bridges, in in a book I I really like, uh, if you've never read it, I highly recommend it, but Jerry Bridges wrote a book, True Fellowship. And here's how he described fellowship. I'm quoting from him. Fellowship is sharing a common life in Christ with other believers, a life that we together share with God the Father and God the Son. It is a relationship, not an activity. End quote. So again, notice he's also saying the same thing as we're hopefully seeing in the Bible here. It is a relationship. It's communion, a sharing, not an activity. And based on our text here in 1 John chapter 1, the idea of spiritual fellowship would include at least four parts, and we're going to see these four parts in the text, and I love the way uh, Thabiti put it. He wrote a book called The Life of God and the Soul of the Church, and uh, he got that basically from the text here. But he's, uh, he's getting these various points from the text, and, and I'm going to use those and share these with you from the text today, and then elaborate on that, okay? But, uh, so, the four points from the text is this. The spiritual fellowship is, number one, the life of God in the soul of man, experienced personally by believing the truth, three, shared relationally in the church, four, leads to joy and holiness. So, there it is, the whole... So, if you put that all together, spiritual fellowship is what? The life of God and the soul of man, experienced personally by believing the truth, shared relationally in the church, which leads to joy and holiness. Now, all four of those points are in the text. So let's, let's look at our text, and, and we'll take each one of those one by one. First of all, number one, spiritual fellowship begins with the life of God being personally experienced. It's being personally experienced. We see that in verse 1 which says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Four phrases there in in verse 1 that are describing this experience, this life of God that's hopefully being personally experienced. So four descriptions there. And, And by the way, they increasingly get intimate. There's an increasing intimacy there. And what is, by the way, the very first word, at least in my text here, is the word that. What is this that John is writing about? Because 
He just says, that which was. So what has he experienced that was full, complete, and personal? Well, the that in verse 1 ends up getting clarified as you keep reading. And notice John calls the that at the end of the verse 1. He calls it the word of life. The word of life. And and that ends up getting clarified a little later on. John calls it the eternal life. So do you understand what John's talking about there? John is, he's saying, hey, I've handled something. This is a reality to me. I've experienced this. It's not just something I read about or I heard about. No, I've handled it, he says. I've experienced life itself. Now, he's not talking about just any old life. He's not talking about physical life. This life is Jesus. He is literally talking about Jesus. And so he says, life appeared. And this life lived amongst us. I saw him. I heard him. I I saw him crucified on the cross. He was buried, but he rose again the third day, and he now reigns. And John's saying, it's that life, Jesus, I encountered him. I experienced him. It's that life that ended up changing his own life. John knew that intimately. And perhaps this is why John writes of proclaiming this life. He wants to proclaim this life to everybody because he's experienced it. He knows it. And notice how many times John says, we proclaim to you. Did you notice? He says it first of all in verse 1. We proclaim to you. He says it again in verse 2. We proclaim to you. Verse 3, we proclaim to you. Verse 5, we proclaim to you. So why is John so urgently proclaiming this life? Why is this so important to John? Well, that leads us to the second point that needs to be made. Number two, the spiritual fellowship is the life of God, and it ought to be shared in relation with others in the church. Look at verse 3. Because he says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you, notice the next word, so that, that, that gives you purpose right there, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship was with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So let me just highlight those words in your text in verse 3. Because it says, so that, when you see those kind of words in your text, it's giving you purpose. He's proclaiming this. Why? Why is John so urgently proclaiming this? It's important that we have fellowship with one another in the church. Also notice, what is the we? John says we in verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim. Well, John is, John is, uh, he's not schizophrenic. He's not, you know, having mental issues here when he's saying we. Because normally you'd hear someone, if, if they're talking, you say, hey, I proclaim to you. Right? That's kind of normal, right? I'm proclaiming this to you. But John's not saying that. He's saying we. The we is referring to John as well as the other apostles. So we, the apostles, are proclaiming this truth to you, he says. And that's amazing because the messengers of God here, the apostles, They want to have fellowship with them. 
these people. And it's not just with them, it's with the Father and Jesus Christ. So do you know that what this means for preaching? Do you know what this means for, for proclamation of the Word of God? The main goal of gospel preaching is that men and women be brought to fellowship with God and with Jesus. That's the, the main purpose. And not only that, according to the text, it's that we, we come into fellowship with one another. The apostles didn't preach so that there would simply be a new me. That's, that's singular. But the apostles were preaching so there would be a new we. A new we, the church. They didn't preach simply for a new you, but a new us. It's another way of saying that. So let's be clear, crystal clear here. To have fellowship with the Son is to have fellowship with Jesus Christ, the living Jesus Christ. And this is why Paul is, is just crying out here in Galatians 2, verse 20. I put it on the screen here for you. I love this. Look at this. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Wow, that's a life-transforming verse there. So, when Christ died, I died. And because of that, it's just no longer I who live. Now, I, I, I died in Christ, but I also arose with Christ. I'm alive in Christ. And death no longer uh, has its, its victory and reigns over me. And sin no longer reigns over me. And Christ lives in me, through, particularly through the Holy Spirit, whom he sends. Oh, it's amazing. There's, it's such a rich verse. But th this life of God that was planted in our souls is also shared with other believers, shared with one another. And it has a glorious goal, which we'll look at here in our text. You say, well, what is that goal? Well, it's found starting in verse 4. What is the goal of spiritual fellowship? Number one, it's joy. Joy is one of the goals of spiritual fellowship. Look at verse 4. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Wow. Wow. So John's clarifying the message of the gospel for his readers, as well as for us. And notice he's proclaiming his message here for this, uh, one of the purposes that our joy would be full. It's something, the idea is it means it's overflowing. It's like, you ever poured water and you weren't really paying attention, you're pouring water into a, a cup or a glass and it just overflows. And That's the idea. It's something that's just bursting forth. It's beyond full. And he doesn't just want us to be lacking, uh, he doesn't want us to just be lacking in our experience of joy here. This is an incredible thing. He wants us to go beyond uh, even, even what our minds can comprehend. It's an incredible thing. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this lately. The Son of God took on flesh. God took on flesh. Uh, just, just think about that. Meditate on that. Life itself entered this world. The one who created the whole universe lim came and limited himself in, in a certain way. He took on the form of a man. He, he still is God. 
but Jesus also became man. He's fully God and fully man in one person forever now. But life itself, that's who he is, he's called life, entered this world to be horribly abused, was eventually slaughtered, nailed on that cross, hung on that cross, was eventually buried after he died, but he rose again. He rose from death, conquering death. Why did he do that? Well, one reason is for your joy. You know, Jesus cares about your joy. He wants you to be joyful. He does. In fact, when read Hebrews chapter 12. Because it says that Christ endured the agony of that cross. What caused him to endure that? He knew what he was coming to do, by the way. He knew he was going to die on the cross. He knew all that ahead of time. He allowed it to happen to himself. But why? Well, the, Hebrews 12 says that Christ endured the agony of the cross for the joy that was set before him. The joy set before him. That doesn't sound like joy. So what? it certainly wasn't the physical agony that was the joy that he had in mind. So what was he thinking of? Well, what joy did Christ have in mind? It must have been redeeming us. The joy of, of knowing him and having this relationship and fellowship with him. Uh, that's the only thing that I can think of. Have a read of that sometime. So joy was the first goal of spiritual fellowship. Number five, or sorry, the next one, number two, sorry, is in verse five, is it's holiness. Holiness is the goal of spiritual fellowship. Because look at verse five. It says this, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. No darkness at all in God. So what is verse 5 telling us? Well, it's telling us a lot, but it's telling us that God is absolute. That he is absolute, perfect light. John uses light here, by the way, as a metaphor for holiness. You'll often see John contrasting light and darkness. But how often do we think of holiness as joy? I confess, I don't think I do a whole lot, but holiness to God is something that's beautiful. And in fact, in the Bible, you see the angels singing and talking about it, don't you? That God is the thrice holy God. They, you see the angels saying, God is holy, holy, holy. To God, it's a beautiful thing. To the angels, it's a beautiful thing to behold. That God is something that's unique and distinct and separate from his creation. And so they, they, part of that is that he's sinless, that he's perfect. But it's so much more than that. So this is something you need to understand. It's a beautiful thing, a good thing. Holiness is light. True holiness contains the kind of joy that doesn't bring shame. There's no embarrassment at all. And you compare the joy of holiness to the false joys of this world, it just doesn't compare. The false joys of this world entangle us. They ensnare us. They bring shame. They make us want to hide ourselves from other people. They ca it causes us often to be, feel guilty, feel that shame. Those are the pleasures of sin. They're futile. They're empty. They eventually lead to destruction. 
that's not joy. That's not joy at all. There's, they're futile. They're empty. And they lead to destruction. They're, they're pleasure, uh, the, these pleasures lie to us. They, they offer us so much and never deliver on their promises. And so they lie to us about what is clean and good and worthwhile, just like Satan did to Adam and Eve, particularly Eve, when Eve was there in the Garden of Eden. She had the perfect life. She was perfect. Satan got her to doubt, and eventually she ate of that fruit. Hey, you, you, you can be like God. You can know good and evil. And she's looking at this fruit and ends up taking from it eventually. The lie to us is, hey, you don't have what's really good. You, you, you need something else. You don't have enough. God's not enough. Well, think about that, though. When we walk holy as God is holy... We can now live without fear. We can live without shame. We can live without guilt. We walk in a glorious joy because of the life that God is working in us, in our souls. When we look at verses 6 to to 10 here, let's read these. You you can see how John applies these theological truths here in verses 6 to 10. So look at verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with Him... While we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So John's applying the theological truths here for us. And he brings these statements down to our practical living, if you will. He's understanding our reality and our life, and and he's giving us five if-then statements in those four verses. Five if-then statements. And he alternates between three negative ones that deny these certain claims. And then he gives two positive statements that are confirming or agreeing with these truths. So the three negative statements here in verses 6 to 10 are just flat out deny a person can have fellowship with God and then live an unholy and sinful life. John says it doesn't work. You can't live an unholy and sinful life and, and, uh, and then actually have some fellowship with God. It doesn't work that way. And so during John's day, there were uh, obviously, because he's writing about here, some who claimed that they were without sin. They were somehow perfect before God. Well, is that a reality? John says no. The apostle clearly dispels that false belief. You, you're not perfect yet. John says it's impossible to have fellowship with God and at the same time live in darkness. Clearly, lightness, light and darkness can't exist together, right? I mean, have you ever turned a light, for example, have you ever turned your light switch on in the room and half your room dark and half of it be light? Well, that's not possible unless there's something blocking the light, Right? So you turn that light switch on, the the light bulb's there and everything's working properly, the the whole room becomes light. 
they, they don't coexist with one another. And that's the idea in the spiritual realm, too. Light chases away darkness, just like when the sun comes up. Isn't that wonderful, watching the sun come up on the horizon? Just, it's like that, that, that big, bright sun just chases away the darkness. Darkness vanishes before light. Well, that brings a problem that we all have. We all have the same problem. All of us have sinned, and we do have sin. It creates a major problem for us, doesn't it? So what are we going to do with our sins? Well, that's the application we see in here in our text. So let me ask you this. How can we have fellowship with God? Because we're all sinners. We all have darkness. So how can we then have fellowship? We as darkness, who are sinners, how is it possible then to have fellowship with God who is light? Well, John sees two ways people can actually respond to this truth. I hope you don't do the first one, but here's how some people respond to this truth. They deny it. They deny the truth. We we see that, like in verse 6, for example, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Look at verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. <laughs> right? So don't deceive yourself. That, that's not the right response to the truth. The problem is denial actually leads us to death. So what are you going to do if you recognize there's sin and darkness in your life? If you see that, what are you then going to do? Well, the second correct strategy is do what verses 7 and 9 talk about, which is confess. Look at verse 9. If we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I love that word all, by the way. All unrighteousness. All sin is dealt with. This is beautiful. Because confession actually leads to life, not death. It leads to light. And notice how this comes. It's through the blood of Jesus. So question, does verse 7 say that the blood cleanses from some sins? It doesn't say that, does it? No. It says Jesus' blood atones. It covers all sins. All sin. And that means sin. There, there's no such thing as sin, you know, small, big sins, old and new sins, sins past, present, future. It, it, it really doesn't matter to God. You understand? You can't commit too many sins. You can't commit a big sin that God will not forgive. I, I love that because I'm the greatest sinner I know. Paul thought the same thing. <laughs> he called himself the chief of sinners. He, he, was, he was a murderer of Christians. And he, he could have probably meditated on that for a long time and thought, I'm not worthy of God's mercy and grace. We might do that at times, too, thinking, hey, I'm not worthy of God's grace. And, and Well, you're, really, you're not. But God says this, I am faithful. I am just. I've dealt with your sins. You just need to confess them to me. That's beautiful. So our sins are purged. The, the record is canceled. It's removed, and our fellowship of joy is renewed. It's like having, imagine having a criminal record, a massive criminal record. 
that is so big that you, there's just no way. <laughs> I mean, you, you, could, you, could suffer, you could suffer the death penalty a hundred times and still really not cancel your criminal record. You could spend your entire life, multiple lifetimes in prison, and never cancel out your criminal record. Imagine that. Just imagine that. But imagine somebody coming along and dealing with your record so that it's, it's totally canceled, so that the judge and everybody on earth will now look at you as not only innocent, but as actually good. Imagine. That's exactly what Jesus did for you, my friends. He did that for you. He purged your sins. He canceled the record. Removed that sins as far as the east is from the west. And now you and I can understand the fellowship of joy with Jesus Christ. Well, we set out to ask and answer two questions. What is spiritual fellowship? What is the goal of spiritual fellowship? We've answered both of those with a, with a definition I hope you find helpful. I'll repeat that for you. Spiritual fellowship is the life of God and the soul of man, experienced personally by believing the truth, shared relationally in the church, and leads to joy and holiness. So, if our spiritual fellowship is then to flourish in our local church, you have to admit we need some improvement in this area. This is something we struggle with. So if we're going to flourish in this area of spiritual fellowship, there's four things we need to do. Okay, This is application. All right, number one, by way of application, we must carry to others the message of joy and holiness. It's a glorious message. It's not something to be bottled up, to be hoarded. It's something we got to share. Let other people know about it. John, five times, he mentions that he and the other apostles proclaimed this message it was that important they wanted this message of life to to be given to other people so they would understand it it's a pattern of ministry by the way the wonderful pattern of ministry we're all ministers of jesus christ so let's let's fulfill it let's follow it model it should be a normal pattern of the christian life today so Christian is one who is personally experiencing eternal life. We experience it through faith in Jesus Christ. And then you know what happens when you're experiencing it in Jesus? You're going to become a witness to Jesus. You're going to proclaim the good news to other people. And this is why we must do evangelism. It's why we must be involved in missions. When we share that gospel with others, we're what are we doing, by the way? We're inviting others to come share what should be a reality and an experience with us, right? That's what a witness does. They talk about what they've seen and heard. That's what John's doing. He was a witness of Jesus' life itself. It's a privilege as well as a responsibility. Number two, we must stop thinking of our Christian life as individual and private. This is something that's destroying churches around the world. People become more individualistic, more private. I don't know if you notice this or not, but did you notice all the pronouns in the first ten verses of 1 John are all plural? Did you notice that? Uh, except when they're referring to Jesus. Uh, 
All the pronouns are plural. You'll see plural pronouns like we, us, our. Why is that? Why are they plural? What's the point? Well, spiritual fellowship with God is a group experience. It's not private. Yes, okay, don't get me wrong. Your worship can be private. Okay? You can have private worship with God every day. Every day. Please do that, by all means. But here in this text, the spiritual fellowship with God is a group experience. It's a public experience. Just like you often see in the Psalms, those those corporate hymns that ancient Israel would have sung were often plural. So my friend, we're entering into the faith individually and personally. Yes, you're saved as an individual, but you live that faith out corporately and publicly. God designed it that way. By the way, did you notice that even our confession of sin is public? Yes. If you don't believe me, look at verse 9. <laughs> in our text, in verse 9, it says, If we confess our sins. So even our own con- confession of sins is something that should and can be done corporately as a group. So it's, it's quite appropriate, like when we pray... Sometimes you probably heard me pray. Sometimes I pray for us corporately that God would deal with our sins, forgive us of our sins. That's appropriate. So when we see one another and we know the other to be a believer in Christ, our minds should be concluding this, that we are one in God. We are united to Him. And so if we embrace the truths that we see here in 1 John, you know what you end up doing? You end up embracing other believers. You can't live as though you're unrelated to one another when you understand the basis of fellowship. Number three. Just two more points to be made. Number, but number three here, we must stop deceiving ourselves and stop allowing others to deceive themselves as well. Because John letter makes that quite clear here. He, don't deceive yourself. There's no biblical justification for these groups of people that, that I often hear about. I'll, I'll talk about them, okay? There's, there's a group of people called carnal Christians, and there's another one called uh, the, the Christian perfectionist. Right, you say, well, what are those? Um, John's saying there's no room for either of those. All right, so let me talk about the first one the carnal Christians, so to speak. There's this theory out there of the carnal Christians that that says a person can accept Jesus Christ as their Savior, but uh, I refuse to accept Him as my Lord. Jesus is not my Master. He does not have full claim on every aspect of my life. There are people who believe that. John calls that a lie. (laughs) In fact, when you read the book of Romans... Chapter 10, for example, 9 and 10. He's both Savior and Lord. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's, he's both Lord and Savior. That's a, that's a theory. And then there's the Christian perfectionism. is the idea it's possible for people to arrive at sinless perfection in this life. That's called perfectionism. So that somehow you can... You can be so conformed to Jesus Christ in this earthly life that you're just like Him. 
well, that's not possible. Verses 8 and 10 in your text certainly rule out that theory. John calls that self-deception. John calls that a lie. All right? Number four, last point, is we must understand and emphasize church membership. Okay? Uh, at the moment, uh, I'll just be honest with you, we're struggling with the church membership. We need more church members. Church membership is something I hope you understand the importance of it and, and why you should be a part, uh, formerly joined in participating in the life of a local church. You say, well, what is church membership? Uh, here's the way I like to put it. Membership is an invitation to you, for all of us to participate in gospel realities in a more concrete and defined way, in a, even in a formal way, if you will, to know the realities in a more meaningful way, not just a, a surface thing, okay? You know, we're, we're all glad for people visiting churches, but membership really helps define things in a more concrete and it, it, it helps to hopefully foster participation, more participation, more obeying of the one another commands. And I'm convinced that the Christian who is trying to live the Christian life apart from fellowship with God's people is hindering themselves as well as other people. You hinder yourself if you're not involved in spiritual fellowship because God's designed for you to be strengthened and encouraged by other believers. That's one of his means of grace for your life. But God has also designed the church to be a body. The body has many, as 1 Corinthians 12 says, many members. And when all the members are not united together, attached, and growing together and doing their part, the body suffers. I hope you understand that analogy that Holy Spirit's using in 1 Corinthians 12. And then you translate that over into... To we are a, uh, an organic body, if you will. There's so much application there, but this is just not how God intended us to live, to be living individually, living just private lives. So my friend, God means for our fellowship to end in holy, everlasting joy. That's the end product, the goal, if you will. So may we taste of that joy even now.